So far through Matthew's Gospel, Matthew has been, in the way he arranges the material, highlighting to some degree a connection between Jesus' ministry and the exodus of uh, the Jewish people out of Egypt. And here you get that again. Uh, Jesus goes up, there's a, there's a parallel between the Sermon on the Mount and the people of Israel coming to Sinai. And there's some parallels here that are fairly obvious. So Jesus goes up uh, a mountain. Matthew makes quite a big deal of that. Luke, not so much. In fact, he calls it a plain. So, you know, not a plain, but you know, a flat place. Uh, because a plain would be even higher, wouldn't it, when you think about it? <laughs> so, very good. <laughs> um, yeah, so Matthew highlights this. He's going up a mountain. Uh, so there's a reference to Sinai. He's calling all the people together. He calls the disciples together. There's this inauguration of a new kingdom. He's been preaching the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's distinctive language to describe Jesus' ministry. And Jesus is about to give the new law of the kingdom. We don't get to that bit today in our sermon, but over the weeks to come, we're going to be reintroduced to things that are fairly familiar, where Jesus raises the stakes about our obedience to God. Things like, you've heard it said, do not murder, I say to you, do not even call a man a fool. You know, that sort of thing. He's raising the standard. But so before he delivers this law, he is going to give us an explanation of what it's for. But there's something interesting I just wanted you to observe, really. Well, something that struck me um, about Matthew's presentation. Sinai was a dramatic event. You know, a million people or so gathered around a mountain, fire, thunder, cloud, smoke. You couldn't go near the mountain. A law with you know, God's finger etched on, onto stone tablets. It was profoundly dramatic. And this is a, a mountain somewhere. It's a bunch of people who happen to be around and some disciples. And instead of fire, thunder, smoke and so on, it's Jesus delivering quite in a very down-to-earth, accessible style, uh, this new law of the kingdom. Isn't it a bit low-key <laughs> for such a, a turn, turning point? Well, uh, that's always in, intrigued me, actually. As I was preparing uh, this message... The thought occurred to me, it would be a bit like if you compared, let's say, the opening of Parliament and the arrival of the Queen in all her ermine and baubles and, sorry, I should say diamonds, and so on. <laughs> the gates being open and the ceremony and so on, if she reads her speech, that would be a really important occasion, wouldn't it? But imagine then if, one, if after that the Queen rang you up and she said, I'd like you to come to Buckingham Palace, I really need to talk to you. That would seem much more low-key. Okay, you probably feel a bit weird driving through the gates and having all the policemen look at you and all that sort of thing. When it came down to it, you sat down, you got your little bone, fine bone china out, and she began to open her heart to you. It would seem, in one sense, to be much more low-key, but for you, it would be much, much more important, wouldn't it? And I think there's a parallel there between really what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. It seems low-key, but actually, God is welcoming us in in a way that he couldn't do before. Because of the new covenant, because what Christ was about to do in his ministry and on the cross and by his blood and adopting us as sons, God is treating us now as his children. And he's drawing us into his counsel to explain, not less formally, well, yes, less formally, but actually in more detail, uh, more approachably. He's sharing his heart in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's what's really going on there. And I think it's helpful to remember So Jesus is proclaiming the law of the kingdom. It's interesting. Jesus, in the verses we've read, Jesus is explaining what the purpose of the law is. And that 
What is the purpose of God's moral law? That should be, I think, in one sense, a very straightforward question to answer. But weirdly, for a long, long time, people get themselves all in a muddle about it. Some people think that God gives us a law simply to tell us what, what to do. That's a common opinion among people who aren't Christians. You know, God's just written the law down and it's kind of like, you know, angry God in the sky telling us what to do. We need to be free of that. It's just a list of arbitrary rules. Some people are a bit more sympathetic. There's a kind of religious uh, stereotype, I suppose you can say. That, um, but it, it emerges in some uh, religions that, that the law that God gives us is a test we have to pass. So you've got ancient Egyptian culture and you've got that whole story about your good deeds being out, you know, weighed up against your bad deeds when you, you, when you die. And if you pass the test like on some kind of scale, you get to go to heaven. And there are still some uh, Muslims, I believe, who would basically subscribe to that. What is the purpose of the moral law? Well, here Jesus gives us two really, really accessible pictures to describe what the purpose of the law is. Salt and light. And they're brilliant, of course they are, because the Lord gave them. <laughs> you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. So what does that mean? Both salt and light have a preservative action. Salt preserves food, it prolongs the life of food, doesn't it? By desiccating it, it stops uh, bacteria from growing and other stuff, technical stuff that you probably know more about than I do, so I'm not going to explain all that to you. Bacon has a longer use-by date than, than pork joints. That's what I'm getting at, basically. <laughs> salt is a preservative. Okay, that's fairly that's obvious. Less obvious, but intuitively, I think it's we know light is also a preservative. Very simply, where you install street lights, crime rates drop. Mark Taylor, is that true? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so light is a preservative. Well, we don't often think about that, but I think intuitively, we know we feel safer when the lights are on, that sort of thing. So Jesus is talking about the role that Christians have in the world. You're the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. It's a, it's a massive job, isn't it? He's not narrowing down the scale. He's, he's saying, actually, what you do, your obedience to this law I'm about to give you, affects the whole world and has this preservative effect. So why obey God's law? Because it stops moral decay. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It almost sounds like a truism. Why be good? Because it stops bad things from happening. <laughs> but actually, there is a, a more subtle point here, really. Jesus isn't just giving us the truism. I mean, he's reminding us of that. Because, like I said, we get ourselves in a bit of a kerfuffle about that truth. Um, but the point is more subtle. Often, the moral choices before us don't seem that significant. Often, they just seem like it's just, you know, you and me with what I do right now, especially when it comes to the small things that Jesus is about to talk about, the hidden things of the heart, don't seem to matter that much. So Jesus is saying, when you come to those moral choices, actually, you need to understand the scope. What is going to happen when you make a choice for good or for evil? If you choose to obey what I've commanded you, this isn't just about whether you go to heaven or whether I'm pleased with you or any of those things. This is about the effect it has on the whole world around you. The scope of it is incredible. If you disobey me, it's going to have bigger effects than you realize. The writer George Eliot in the book Middlemarch puts it like this, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. Shall I say that again? Yes. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life. 
and who rest in unvisited tombs. It's a bit poetic. I was feeling a bit poetic when I wrote that, but <laughs> when I copied it down from the internet. <laughs> um, but I think it's a profound quote. You know, it's making the same point. Our lives are preserved. The good that we experience is it's not always massive choices, huge moral jeopardy that someone's gone through. Actually, it's the, small, it's the hidden life. And that, because that's what Jesus is going to be talking about. It's the hidden life. That means the world we live in is half, not half as bad as it would have been. That's the point Jesus is making. So you look in our society, look at how easily relationships are broken, just to take one example. You know, a couple get together, they have kids, they break up. And they think it's just about them, which is understandable. I mean, you know, we understand the pressures and the difficulties. They think it's just about them. We don't love each other anymore. They don't want to see the kids arg- uh, us arguing or whatever it is, whatever, however we justify it. But actually, what they don't see is the ramifications. They don't see it, it's the pulling of a loose thread at the edge of a tapestry, you know. But actually, if Paul, generations of broken relationships occur, economic and social hardship folly, inefficiency and emotional and mental scarring, you know, it just goes down and down and down through the generations. And conversely, the simplest acts of moral obedience have an incredible power to sustain goodness and to promote God's good name. Disproportionately preservative effect. Punished to the third and fourth generation. But as the psalmist said, your faithfulness is for a generation of generations. So time and again, in one sense, Jesus is pointing out to us the moral choices we make to obey God or not obey God are more important, if you like. That's the the thing he really needs to talk to us about that he couldn't say during the Queen's speech, you know, that he couldn't say at Sinai. It's not playing it down. It's, look, I really need to talk to you. This is much more important than you realise. Do you understand? Day after day, heaven holds its breath as we choose good or evil. And who knows what hangs in the balance, even on our smallest choices. It's a relatively straightforward point. But what really pushes Jesus, the Lord's teaching here, to the next level is the extent to which it's applied. It's easy for us to see how the consequences of disobeying the Ten Commandments leads to generation upon generation of evil. So a man worships uh, someone other than God. He bows a knee and he swears allegiance to Hitler or Stalin or whatever, or he denies his faith. We can see how that obviously denies God. Someone steals something, you know, it wrecks their life and it impoverishes someone. We can see that. But Jesus is going to be teaching about, like I say, these hidden things of the heart. If you say in your heart, fool, it's close to murder. If you don't forgive, you can't even approach God. These are hidden things. What we underestimate is the worth of these seemingly invisible obediences. Heaven holds its breath, not just once every now and then when you face a moral crisis, but a thousand times a day, waiting to see what the children of God will do or not do. 
It's not just the big sins or big obediences which are redemptive, preservative of the world, but the small ones. And likewise, the small obediences are of a value we can't imagine. Jesus is calling us. He's saying, do you see? This is what I've made you for. A light on a hill cannot be hidden. This is the purpose of of the law. To save the world. Preserve it. Do you see how important your job is? Salt and light don't just have a preservative function. They also speak to us about goodness. There's a kind of positive aspect as well. Salt adds flavour, very simply. We put salt on food to make it taste better, and it brings out the flavours of the rest of the food. I think it does, or maybe I'm just addicted to salt. I'm not really sure. But... (laughs) The jury's out. But commonly speaking, salt adds flavour. Adds flavor. And light, of course, well, and light does so many things. But let's just say for shorthand, light reveals beauty. If we only tell, if we, we only tell half the gospel, if we speak about the redemptive aspect of obedience. Yes, moral obedience, the obedience to the commands Christ gives is about preserving the world from evil. It's about stopping moral decay. But actually, it's also about revealing God's beauty. Do I need to say that again? I don't. It's about revealing God's beauty. So if we only talk about we must obey God in order for you know, sin to be suppressed, that's only a bit of it. God wants us to, he wants us to listen to what Jesus is saying and obey him, not just because it's like good or evil, but because when we obey him, we live beautiful lives that point people to God. In fact, I go even further. It's not just about our lives. We enable people to reinterpret the world around them and see it as a gift from God. That is incredible, incredible opportunity and responsibility. We enable people to see the world around them and see it as a gift from their Heavenly Father when we live the lives God calls us to live. So in Isaiah, um, through Isaiah, God speaks to people and says he's going to give them a garment of salvation, that's what we talked about, this preservative effect, and a robe of righteousness. You see, there's two things. In the Revelation, the bride, which is a picture of the church at the end of time, is adorned in white, which is the good, the righteous deeds of the saints. Our beauty, our moral beauty is, is intended to draw people to Jesus. So by our obedience to the law of Christ, we can make the world more beautiful. We add flavour. We reveal its goodness like lights being switched on and we point people to God. The opposite is true. St. Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 18 of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So when we disobey God, when we do things that are morally bad, we actually cover up the knowledge of God. It's like throwing a blanket over the sky, if you will. But when we obey him, we reveal him to other people. I'm starting to get a bit nervous, actually. It seems like quite a lot of responsibility. I don't know. If you understand what I'm saying, you probably should be as well. We reveal him by our obedience. In some some ways, I think we have to admit as Christians that the world God has made is deliberately open to interpretation. Darwin famously said, it sounds like one of those internet quotes, it wasn't actually Darwin now, I come to think of it, but anyway... Darwin famously said <laughs> that nature is red in tooth and claw. Some people, when they see 
the natural world around them. They look at it and they say it's a fight for survival. It's chaotic. The strong survive. You know, that sort of thing. There's violence and decay and all, all that sort of thing. Shakespeare, I can't remember which play it is. One of you might shout out for me. One of his characters says this, Life is but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Some people would hear, listen to that, and they would agree. They'd look at the circumstances of their own life. They would look at the, uh, the world around. They'd look at suffering. They might look at, like I say, at nature. And they would say, it signifies nothing. But to the Christian, the whole world is upheld by the word of God. Everything that exists has meaning and is a message that speaks of the love of God through Christ. Everything that Darwin says is read in tooth and claw, somehow, it's, it's not overstating it, it may be hard for us to figure it out, somehow reveals God's love to us. Everything. And every, because of that, everything in creation is pregnant with the fruitfulness of the Spirit, just waiting to be brought out by what you do or don't do. Nature read in tooth and claw is also a world full of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, that images the love of God. The vast expanses of the universe and their chaos and their enormity and extremes of temperature and all those things that are out there that science points to and says, look, we're just a meaningless dot on some wing of the galaxy. <laughs> That's, you can reinterpret it, cold and dead and lifeless and empty and vast and scary can be inverted to be a picture of a planet suspended in perfect peace, embryonic in the stillness, pointing to God's perfect care, his shalom. And so too for our lives, this is the point Jesus is making. Each of our moral choices can reveal or cover up the fatherhood of God to the world. That's our priestly role as Christians. It's an incredible responsibility that we have. People around us are looking at nature, at lives, at their circumstances, at all sorts of things, and they're trying to make sense of it. And the church, it's worth mentioning, isn't it, that Jesus isn't just talking about you and me individually. He's talking about a city. The church as a whole has this job of interpreting the world and enabling people to see it as a gift from God and drawing them to salvation through them. That's part of our job. So do you see what the law is for? I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty straightforward. I think of, I mean, and again, to come back to Jesus' point, it's not just the big things. It's not just the giant moral choices. Your everyday lives, the hidden things of your heart, the choices that almost nobody sees apart from God, do that. They make the world beautiful or ugly. They reveal God's fatherhood or they cover it up. I think of a film I watched a long time ago, 22 years ago now, uh, during my theology uh, education. They played, they played us a film at university called Dead Man Walking. I don't think anyone's seen that. And there's this amazing kind of double ending. Uh, 
the, the main character has committed a terrible crime, is sentenced to death, and he's put to death. <laughs> Sorry to spoil the film, but you know, he's put to death. But before death, he actually becomes a Christian, and he gets forgiveness. And the family of the, the person who he committed this crime against are happy he's dead. And I remember watching it and thinking, I, I agree with them. What happened to him? This punishment was just. It was just in one sense. Well, I mean, you can debate that at like some kind of film club or something, if you like, but it felt okay. But the forgiveness that he experienced revealed God's fatherhood. And there's this... And those who are able to see that saw the world as a more beautiful place because they saw the heart of what Jesus is going to teach in the Sermon on the Mount. I remember also when Abby and I lived in Peckham and um, uh, it was the time Damalola Taylor was murdered. Some of you remember that. And his parents went on television and they did what Jesus said and they forgave. Publicly, they forgave. Did anyone else shed a tear at the time? Isn't it beautiful? Doesn't it make the ugliness of the whole thing that happened, doesn't it turn it around and point to God's fatherhood? And that's what God is inviting us to in everything we do and everything we say, in our thought life and our private life and our hidden things. We have this opportunity to maybe move people to tears, but more importantly, point people to God. So here's a takeaway for us. This incredible responsibility that Jesus gives us it imbues our everyday life with purpose it's not just about those moments of great moral jeopardy that you may face in your life when you have a big choice to make to obey God or not it is in the everyday it's not just Adam in the garden or David looking at Bathsheba it's not just those moments it's every day every day the Bible says we can lead quiet lives, full of contentment, working hard with our hands. And the way we do that is just maybe more important than heaven. Just like the Sermon on the Mount is more important than Sinai. Just like tea with the Queen is more important than the opening of Parliament. In in heaven, so our small lives will be revealed to be far bigger than we know. Our apparently greatest failures and victories will be the things that God says, yeah, that was just a kind of practice run. <laughs> and seemingly insignificant decisions will suddenly appear to us like a child stumbling across a priceless treasure and running up to their father and saying, look what I found. <laughs> or a child almost accidentally killing a dragon. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how our lives are going to appear in heaven. Songs will be sung and tales will be told of the time that you didn't cut up that guy on the motorway. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> okay, maybe about the time you did as well. <laughs> so your life matters. You see what Jesus is saying? Your life matters. This law of the heart, this, this is the royal law. He's taken us into his royal council. And not only has he revealed our heart, but he tells us something completely unexpected. He doesn't just say, look, this is, this is what I'm getting at at Sinai. This is what's really at stake. This is what it's really about. It's preserving the world and revealing my beauty. 
He, he hits us with the zinger. This isn't just about obedience. He's saying, you are my children. What you do makes all the difference in the world because you are royalty. That's what, that's what the Queen's invited us in to tell us. We are royalty, and this is his royal law. Well, as much as I think that's the main point of that first half of the passage, there's also a sense at this point, really, if you've understood what I said, like I say, you should probably feeling, be feeling quite burdened. <laughs> like it's a huge responsibility, right? If, that's, if everything I said is true, then it's a massive responsibility. And that's really what the second half of the passage is about. You know, simple external obedience to the, just the ten, let's just take the Ten Commandments, it's hard. You know, especially when you get down to coveting, like Paul says, that's, you know, like, I'm okay right down to there, and they're like, Cover, coveting, coveting, I covet everything. <laughs> Where does it stop, you know? It's just that simple obedience is hard. And Jesus, he's going he's gonna to raise the stakes so high, your righteousness must exceed the, you know, that out of the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord, your righteousness must exceed that. This royal reveal comes with Something else, though. It comes with a royal inheritance. That's an amazing promise. The statement, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. It's not a threat. It's a promise. You can read a must like that, can't you? As in, it's inevitable that it will happen. If you're in Christ, and you follow him faithfully, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees because that's what's going to happen. I'm, I'm not saying he intended it like that, but I'm just saying there's an irony there that the Holy Spirit is really good at that. <laughs> you know, we think of the Pharisees as these um, model external perfectionists and, and like they're showing off their goodness all the time, but really that is not the point. The point about the Pharisees that Jesus is, the reason he's upset with them is that they're cowboy builders. That's why he's upset. They come along and they say, righteousness is easy if you try hard enough. And they say, they look at God's law and they, they give you a knockdown price and they say, we'll do it in three days or four days or five days and I'll do it for a tenth of the price of what it's actually going to cost you. And they, they knock up a righteousness that when you look at it really closely, it's just really, really shoddy workmanship and doesn't stand up. That's, what, that's why Jesus has a problem with the, the Pharisees showing off their righteousness. It's not the showing off the righteousness that's the problem is that it's not righteousness that they're showing off. Does that make sense? We think of it, and this is why Jesus is saying it. He's not saying you have to hide your light because I don't want people to see how good you are. That would be, he's literally saying, that's stupid. Why would I make a light and then hide it under a bucket? Why would I make salt and then leach all the saltiness out of it, which is apparently a thing, by the way, in the first century, because salt wasn't pure. Why would I make salt, leach all the saltiness out of it, and then you know, try and make it salty. It doesn't make any sense. God has saved you for the purpose of doing good works so that people can see what a difference Jesus makes to your life, so that the world is saved from sin, so that people can see God's fatherhood in all of creation. That's what he's made you for. So go and obey him with all your heart, but just don't be a cowboy, cowboy builder about it. That's what he's saying. He's against the pharisaical ostentation because it's not real. He wants us, our light to shine because the righteousness that Christ gives us is real. It is real. 
He's not building a, some dodgy extension on the back of a house. He's building a temple for the Holy Spirit. And it gives us, it frees us from this perfectionism. The Calvary builder is constantly worried that he's going to be rumbled before he gets paid, isn't he? Once he gets paid, he can scarper and you never have to see him again. He can't show you around his righteousness. He can't invite you for dinner because you're going to see him angry and you're going to see all the, you know, the works of the flesh coming out. And that's what Jesus saw when he had dinner with the Pharisees. You can't be open. You can't stop looking over your shoulder when it's your righteousness. But when righteousness comes from Christ, it doesn't matter. It brings you this incredible freedom because if there are imperfections in your life, if there are things that don't make sense, if there's inconsistencies with the moral commands of God, if there's a falling short of what Jesus says here, it doesn't matter because you're not finished yet. But you can still go, look at what Jesus has done so far. It's really, really amazing. That's okay. It brings us a real humility. It's not showing off. It's not self-righteousness. You know, there's so much in this second part of the reading. I know that you believe me when I say I could do a sermon series on the second half of this reading. Jesus says, I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. You know, really at the heart, it's this simple premise. The thing that those who love God longed for, the things that the patriarchs wanted, the things that, so- the thing that Solomon wanted, the thing that David cried out to God for, that longed for, with his dry, weary soul, the thing that they wanted, the ability to obey God from the heart, is given to us in Jesus Christ. To not only do what is right, but to understand it and to desire it. The Spirit writes his law onto our hearts. That's what this is about. A man like King David, described as a man after God's own heart, failed so terribly You can, and you will, and you have succeeded because of what Christ has done. When we trust in him. So is there anyone here this morning under condemnation? Anyone who feels the accuser's finger? Anyone living in fear of moral failure? If, If you're not yet... By the time we finish the Sermon on the Mount, you will be. (laughs) Because the standard is so high. Here, not the instruction, not the accusation. Here, the invitation of Christ. Here, the invitation of Christ to 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 see the Father's love and to enjoy the Spirit's power. Hear it. Come, come, drink, be filled. Come and be transformed. Come and be transformed. Come and be a light. Come and be salt. In Christ you are forgiven. You have access to the tree of life. You can come week after week. Throw yourself on his mercy. Repent of what you've done. Come to him in faith. And he won't just say, that's okay. He won't just say, I forgive you. He will make you like him. Because of him, you are already victorious. Already, 
all those who came before. The least in the kingdom is greater than all of those who come before. Already you are greater than Adam. Already than Abraham or Jacob or David. (laughs) Because you're united with Christ and he will preserve you and he will protect you and he will present to you without fault to your Father in heaven.